So I'm here with Mark Shaler today, who is my next interviewee for the Beyond Work radio show. Uh, he's picked uh, an interesting question and one that's very dear to my heart. So, so Mark, why don't you tell us what the question is? So the question is, um, how do we end up doing what we're doing? Um, and this is something that I think and talk about a lot, because as well as my, my day job, which is working with companies to do things better and do better things, I also work in schools and universities for free. So I'll go into schools as a STEM advisor, science, technology, engineering, and maths, or I'll go and do lectures, guest lectures at university. And I talk to them about a calling. I talk to them about finding their element. Um, and that can feel incredibly, oh, what's the word? It can feel incredibly almost flippant and lighthearted in as much as the, the educated, the lucky can find the thing that they want to do, but everybody else just has to put up with doing the thing they've fallen into. But I think there's a conscious decision at some point when they, when they narrow down their, the subjects that they study at school in education, they do so based on the advice of their parents or their teachers. And that, that's generally advice that's maybe 25, 30 years out of date. So for example, my dad said I must do French at O-level, GCSE, because you couldn't go to university without French. Well, that was true in 1961. Mm -hmm. It's not, wasn't true in 1987. Sure. So I ended up having to, to do this flipping horrible subject, which I'm just not, not a natural linguist, um, because I thought it would take me somewhere else. So, so we're forever at that point, the point where you have to funnel and narrow, you end up making decisions based on somebody else's predisposition or, or belief value or 25 year old knowledge. And then that closes gaps. And I, I didn't play that game. I kept my, my, my options really open. I did, a, I did a science, I did a humanity and I did an art. And then when I went through to, to A-level, I did the science and humanity and art. I kept everything broad. Mm. And then when I went to university, I did exactly that again. I did environmental science with geography because I couldn't not do the human side of things. Mm -hmm. um, and I made music in the evening and I DJed and I designed posters and I kept my art thing going as a side project, which is inevitably what happens. I'm interested in, so you had your dad making suggestions. Yeah. Was there anyone else around that time? I mean, who were your, were there mentors? Was there a teacher that stuck out that said something that made you think, oh, this is what I want to do? I had, I was very lucky. I had three incredible teachers. One was a chemistry teacher called Jeff Spencer. Still see him. One was a, an English teacher, uh, Amanda Dalton. Bumped into her recently. Ab absolutely incredible. And one was a geography teacher, Brian Spriggs, who I never see. But those three people were the best teachers. They made me love those subjects. Mm -hmm. And it was more them and their pastoral care and their ability to join the dots between life and the subject than it was the subject. And I'm certain if I'd have had an incredible history teacher, which I never had, I would have loved history. I've grown to love history. Mm -hmm. But those three teachers were incredible. Did they give me any guidance or advice on you? No, they didn't. It, it, that was purely down to me, my family, and then of course the worst, the worst advisors you can get, which are your best mates. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting thinking about that that they gave you something else other than the, the kind of necessary, the, um, the knowledge, or they were giving you knowledge as well, but that extra bit, that, that kind of almost desire for lifelong learning or interest, 
I feel like there's a really delicate balance there. You know, teachers can make you feel like you hate a subject by you've got to the, by the time you've got to the end yeah. of studying it, and you never want to think about it again. And I guess the, the 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 kind of perfect balance is a teacher that kind of does that kind of that delicate thing of making you carry on wanting to learn about it. Com completely. And and the more I think about it, I mean, I, I say this all the time: people buy people. People don't buy what you do; they buy why you do it. All of those trite sayings are absolutely accurate and what I loved about those three teachers was their personality um, and, and some would argue Mr Spriggs didn't have a personality I would completely disagree he was brilliant mm -hmm. um, it, it was the it was understanding what made them tick and why they loved their subject that made me love their subject because I loved them I got them first and then I got the subject and I, I purposely kept my options wide open because I couldn't make a decision and ended up doing a degree where I couldn't, I could go either way. I got a BSc, but most of it was in what I would call human geography. It was understanding how sustainability and, and planning and the spaces that we live in are impact, impact us and are impacted by us. It was all of that human in, interaction. Um, so I kept my options really, really open. You know, my dad gave me advice. My dad, it's interesting actually, I talk about this an awful lot. My dad was a photographer. And um, he once said to me when I was I don't know, nine or 10, I was drawing a picture of the Lone Ranger and he meant absolutely no harm in this. He'd probably just read left brain, right brain or something equally as useless and not right. Um, he saw me drawing and he, and he said, um, you're, you're not the creative one, that's your brother. Because my brother could draw really, really well. He still can, he's brilliant. Uh, and, and I can't, I'm a shit drawer. And Dad said, you know, you, you're the physics-y rugby playing one. And he was right. That was where I excelled, not in drawing. Mm -hmm. But and he didn't mean any harm in it at all. And I, and I and I bear him no malice. But I stopped drawing. Same thing happened at school when I sang. Can't sing at all. Right. And my my, my head teacher said, um, "Would you mind miming in assembly? Because you're putting everybody off." Mm -hmm. That hurts when you're eight, as I was at that yeah. point. Yeah. So I never sang in public really again until I had kids, and then you sing nursery rhymes. So I didn't draw again from sort of for, for pleasure from sort of nine until I had kids. And guess what? I drew like a nine-year-old when I started drawing again. Yeah, I've uh, been there, yeah. And, and so you, you know, you, you, your parents, and it doesn't need to be your parents, it could be a mentor, it could be your friends. The labels that they apply to you massively restrict your aspiration. And, and I love drawing. In fact, I, you know, the thing I loved, when my nan was dying of, um, with Alzheimer's, um, the thing I loved doing with the most was just drawing because it was a leveler. We both drew like nine-year-olds. Right. And the last time I drew with her was when I was nine. Right, yeah. And it was this lovely circle. Mm -hmm. um, what about the music and, the, and that stuff? So you say they were kind of hobbies. Yeah. Did you ever have a kind of desire to make it more than a hobby? I was never a good enough DJ. I, I, I didn't DJ with dance music. I DJed with indie dance, that crossover kind of thing. I found dance music infinitely, infuriatingly repetitive and shit. Um, it got a bit better. Rap was good. So I used to I used to DJ from I'd go from the Smiths into Public Enemy and and that that felt right. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not I didn't think I was musical enough to create. And the, it's, this is this is the fascinating thing about today. The gap between professional and amateur has closed. You can record a radio show with with your iPhone. Yep. I can with my iPhone record a video that could go out on broadcast TV mm -hmm. and that gap has closed. Whereas 30 years ago when I was growing up, 35 years ago when I was growing up, um, the gap was huge. The barriers were massive. And consequently, um, 
I, I never thought I had the ability to do that. Now, had I have had a Mac and the software that comes with that, or, or an iPhone, I, I think I would have stepped from making mixtapes to give to my mates, mm. to making music. It's interesting, this area is very dear to my heart when it comes to music, because when I left school at 16, I didn't really, I knew what I wanted to do, uh, and that was make music. And I got a Princess Trust grant about a year later. And this is where I bought all the equipment from. This whole area used to, ha I mean, it still has some music shops, but whenever I come up to this part of London, I'm just reminded of being 17 and having this 1,600 pounds from the Prince's Trust in my pocket Brilliant. to buy a sampler and an Atari ST and a, an effects machine. There's, there's one over, if you cross Oxford Street, but don't go up um, the bottom end of Charlotte Street, whatever that place mm -hmm. is called, some Rathbone Place, but you, you turn right and go up the next left, it kind of cuts around to the back of Tottenham Court Road. There's still four or five of those yeah. old music shops there, and I, I love them. I get, I get, I wonder if I'm allowed in. Isn't this, I'm a 48 year old man, and I go across the door and think, am I cool enough to get in here? Is this for me? Am I geeky enough? Whatever it is, mm -hmm. am I enough mm -hmm. of it? Um, and I, 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 like you, love the fact that this part of London was known for that kind of, it sounds, I'm gonna use the word creative and I hate using it, that kind of creative industry. Yeah. And slowly it, it's become less of what it was and more of everything else. It's the same, it's the same coffee shop world of, of, yeah. of, eat, of cool London. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that worries me. And then, you, and then you come across one of those little shops like that headphone shop over the road and think, they're still doing it. Still a bit of it. They're there. still going, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when you went to university, by that point you were studying, did you know what you wanted to do at that point? I mean, just going back to the question, you know, like how, <laughs> the, I'm just trying to, what we're going to, what we'll end up doing is working our way to what you're doing now. And I'm sure. just trying to like chart that, that course. Uh, do, do you know what? I, I, the best thing about my degree was it was four years. I had a placement year. And that, that allowed me to go and spend a year working in, in London. Um, and I applied for a numerous types of placement. The kind of course I did, I applied for a placement working in an outward bound center. I applied for a placement working in power, gen, or whatever they were called at the time, um, looking at power and generation. And I applied for some really boutique small consultancies, one of which was in Camden Town. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get an interview. And the secretary in school, in, in university, knew that I was perfect for the job and she knew it was, they'd chosen two people to interview that weren't very good. And she liked me, people mm. by people. Mm. And so Sue, who was just a dream, rang the guy and went, you've really overlooked someone and you made a mistake. Yeah, so in my placement year, which was probably the best decision I made about the degree was to do that placement year. I ended up coming to London after the intervention of the uh, university school secretary. And um, it was working in sort of transport and planning and, and transport studies. So I, I looked at traffic calming and how, how space modified behavior and how behavior changed space. And I, I was really lucky actually. I, I ended up living with um, the, ended up being friends with the sister of the lead singer of, of Blur. And all that music stuff that I never did, I, I DJed at university but I didn't do anything. I could kind of, be connected with, with yeah. that creativity. And I, and I was sat upstairs in this terraced house in Camden and I was hand drawing, I can't draw, I was hand tracing um, traffic calming measures. And, and then I, I fell in love with, with my now wife and I'd spend probably a third of my time drawing her um, kind of pop art pictures and tracing and photocopying and using really basic tools. This was before the internet. 
So using really basic tools to reproduce photographs and to blur them as the copier went across and to mm -hmm. put my face on there. And, and, and I, I misused a third of my time making these amazing, beautiful things for her and writing poems and all of the slushy stuff that, that you do. Do you still see that as misusing? Like over time, did it feel like that? It felt um, like, yeah, yeah, it wasn't now, misusing. Though, does it feel... No, it was the balance that I needed, Curtis. It was the, it was the, the bit of art that was missing from the more technical side of what I was doing. And it was all of that stuff I'd been repressing for years that I was, I was told I couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And of course, when I look back at my sixth form, I was really creative. We came up with filthy posters for sixth form music nights. I, I, I always did it, but, mm. but I, I kind of felt like it, was, it wasn't really what I was there for. And I then went on, I finished my degree in environmental science and I, I spent a year working at universities doing research, which was just a, uh, I got married and, and stuff, so I needed to earn some money. Um, it was just a kind of stop gap until I worked out what I wanted to do. Mm. And then it happened by mistake. There was a, I got offered a job or I went for an interview for a job in Bradford, um, working in environmental um, auditing, but not for the council, but paid by the council to go out to help companies. So it was a council job and it was really good money at the time. And I, and I nearly didn't take it, I'm scared by success way more than failure. Right. And, and I wobbled. I remember my wife going, yeah, I'm pregnant. And it's a 50%, <laughs> I knew that already, but she reminded me. Right, it's a 50% yeah. increase in salary. Uh, so yeah, but it's only a one year contract. Stuff changes, take it. So, and she was right and I took yeah. it and I loved it. I loved it because it was this blend of, of persuasion. I had to go out and help people persuade people to let me in. This was, remember, the early 90s. No one wanted me to come and talk about sustainability. It wasn't even a thing, really. Um, and I had to do the analysis. So there was the humanity, there was the, there was the science, and then there was the creativity of, of designing flyers and posters to get people to events. There was the public speaking at events. And we grew the largest green business club in the country out of Bradford, which is not famous for green or business. It was... Oh. You know, thing. I know a fact about that area because uh, I studied um, the Dustbin Man, yes. who's kind of from near there, Halifax. Yeah. So that kind of area. That, at the moment, they're number eight in the league table for recycling. Wow. Out of 356. It's pretty impressive. Brighton, 350 with amazing. our green MP. That is amazing. And green council. So is that Bradford or Calderdale? Calderdale, it'll yeah. be, yeah. yeah. So not quite, but it's still... No, it's, that, it's, it's, the, a, it's the same catchment, essentially. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's directly next river catchment, actually. Mm, mm. So, so it was really interesting. Two things came across to me. It's really easy to be noticed when people expect nothing of you. No one expected Bradford to be amazing at this. Nobody expected a, a guy just out of university to, to be able to change the way businesses thought. No one expected that at all. So that, you can be noticed really easily. No one expected a DJ slot in a shit club in Bradford to be successful, but it was because everywhere else was shit. Mm -hmm. It's easy to be good when everywhere else is shit. And so um, I learned an awful lot about relative merit and absolute merit, but relative merit. And the second thing I learned is that people buy people. Said it three times in this interview. And I could get so much done. It's not charm, it's not schmarm. I was really good at what I did, but I was good at what I did because people trusted me. And trust breeds magic. Why do you think that was? Why, why do you, what is it about you that? I don't know, I don't know. And, and it's hard to say these things without appearing immodest, but um, when I talk to people, they open up and they open up and they tell me things that I'm not there to talk to them about. And they connect with me in a way that they're not expecting to. I'm not there just to measure their effluent. They, they understand that I'm there to make 
the planet a better place. Having that, that, that desire to serve, which is also very self-serving. You know, we mustn't forget that people that want to give do it because they get from it always, mm. whether that be social work or teaching or what I do or charity work. Um, I've always had that desire to kind of like make things better. But, but people understood my motivations and they understood the quirkiness of my personality and they could see that difficult kid that couldn't draw but could rethink beautiful things about Fibonacci numbers. They could see that and they, they related to, to that. And I saved them money and I made them a green story and I could work with them on explaining who their company was. So I kind of got into brand and innovation and I, I kind of learned all the all of the kind of corner, you know, the cornerstones, my, my 10,000 hours or whatever it is, that, that was done in, in that job, working with grotty little backstreet businesses that are the backbone of this country. And, and we forget, you know, when somewhere's cheap, like Bradford, manufacturers stay there because it's cheap to play and to fail and to succeed. Yeah. It's, it's all cheap. And so places like that are super, super special when you've not got big retailers wanting to buy huge chunks of real estate, you can, you can galvanize steel, you can recycle um, electro components, you can develop new things. And I, I absolutely loved it. And, and it, that was probably the first time that I knew I was in my element, that it was this blend of science, art and humanity. And I could do that in, in my job and I absolutely adored it. And then I had a couple of really wobbly years where I went into um, private sector consultancy and I joined two really rubbish consultancies, one after the other. Mm. And what, what made you do that? Um, two things, if to be really honest, the first thing I was being bullied at work right. by one of the managers, it was, it, I was working for Business Link at the time, and one of the managers was, an, the guy who ran into finance was an absolute dreadful human being. Uh, he wasn't clearly underneath it all, he was probably gorgeous, but he was a real bully. And I, and I just couldn't stand it anymore. And I'm a big chap and I don't tolerate fools and I don't put up with that sort of shit, but it really got to me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I don't want this anymore. And I also felt the need to grow up, in inverted commas, and move away from a, a public sector role and kind of create some skills that are in the in the real world well interestingly neither of those worlds are real and both of those worlds are real um, and I made I made the mistake of choosing small companies to go to and I should have not done that I should have gone with a larger consultancy and, and, and learned a, a more definitive trade and from there I got um, I got headhunted wonderfully the only time it's ever happened by Asda Walmart to go and be their head of sustainability and they'd had one before but not to much success and I thought do I don't I they're a big company I like little companies they're homogenous I like difference they faceless I like personality um, but I did it I went and it wasn't for the money the money was okay but it wasn't for the money um, it was because I felt like I could get a scale of change there and um, and I was wrong mm. it was the wrong thing to do how long did it take you to work that out two weeks oh god yeah but you can't leave a job after two weeks, it looks dreadful. So I sat it through for just over a year. And some of the work I did there was some of my best work. You know, I nearly got fired for wanting to introduce solar panels on every store roof. Local, local supply of fruit and veg, local procurement of fruit and veg, delivery by canal boats, sustainable urban drainage solutions. Everything that I tried to do is now normal. 
but in 1999, 2000, it was considered really, really disruptive. And there's the thing, the difference, the gap between acceptable and disruptive is only 10 years. And so I left before it killed me or changed me. It, it got to the point, Curtis, where I, I worked out, but I hadn't seen, I, I got three kids at this point, they're all very young. I hadn't seen them awake apart from at weekends for three weeks. Yeah, that's too much. Because I was leaving when they were asleep and I was coming home when they were asleep. And, and it coincided with a trip to Australia where I was born, but never lived. And we all came back and went, there's a better way of living. And it's not where you live, it's how you live com com completely. Yeah, yeah. And so I made this really big jump. I left with nothing to go to. And then that's the fear. That's that, <clears throat> what's next? And we were gonna move to Australia and we didn't. We had a few, my wife had a few health issues that we, which, in areas that, which were resolved, but we, they, they were a year or so in the, in the resolving, in the resolution. And um, I ended up having sold my house, not got a job, and moved back down towards my family home of, of, of the Midlands, um, having to do something like urgent. And the easiest way of earning money, the fastest way of getting a paycheck is to do some consultancy. And I had this decision, I was being interviewed for the head of waste for a local authority, not really my bag, but an okay salary and serving, um, or taking a contract with a, uh, another local authority to deliver consultancy over four months for about the same money. So 12 months money, but with security, or the same money in four months, but with absolutely no security. And I, and I just looked at people going in and out of that office. I, w I lived very near that office. And they were gray. And I don't mean they were gray haired or they were women and the men were, were dressed in gray. There was no love and there was no life in their face and there was no sparkle in their eye. And I thought, is it them or is it where they work? And I wasn't willing to take the risk. So I took the consultancy role. And that was 2001 and we're now in 2016 end of. So I've been a consultant, which is nearly a dirty word these days, yeah. for 15 years and I've had amazing years where I earned loads of money and paid shitloads of tax. And I've had dreadful years and it's got, it's got harder, it's got, then it's got easier, then it's got harder and it comes and goes. And, and in that time, you know, I've gone from being an environmental consultant, which is really easy to define and explain who you are, to being a consultant that works on innovation, um, disruption and sustainability, which is way harder because you can't be an expert in all, in all of those things. And when I look at it, I'm just really good at asking really difficult questions and prodding away to find a better way of, of doing things. And that's got some value. People want disruption now. For a long time, the last thing they wanted was a, a disruptive member of staff or a consultant that, that said, yeah, but maybe there's a better way. They want, they want that now. So, so, so it's okay at the moment. Um, I, can, I can kind of see that. But I still do the same three things. I do a blend of science, do my carbon footprint and I do my analysis. Uh, art, I help with brands and I help companies work out who they are. Like the purpose stuff is so important. And I can do that with everybody but me. Physician heal thyself is something I say an, an awful lot. Um, and so science, art, and then the humanities, the whole kind of human stuff. Because if I'm doing some business coaching, which sounds terribly uh, irrelevant sometimes, but it isn't because business people get lost the same as everybody else and what they do is they get a coach in and a coach sits there and and it's under the guise of growing the business but it isn't it's really there to heal the fractures in that person 
Every single person I've coached within business or every single business I've helped, there's been a fracture within the life of the leader. That's normal. We, that we all have mental health issues. We all have depression. We, and we just, we, we, for years we papered over those cracks and now we let it out and that's really healthy. So the work I do on, on the coaching side, in fact, all of the work I do is all like human-centered. It all starts with looking at the frailty and the strengths of the person that I'm, I'm, I'm working with. But it makes it really hard to explain what I do. And in, in that journey, in, that, in that, all of that journey, and I, I think of this moment a lot. When I first left university, I got a, a gig to do some work with the Cyclist Touring Club, the CTC. And I helped write a report about the benefits of cycling to the economy. Sounds really dry. It, it was pretty dry. And um, I got asked to give a paper on it at De Montfort University. And I was so scared. I did that classic mistake of writing it down and reading it out. And I walked away because the guy after me was just a natural orator. He was amazing. Can't remember his name. I wished I could. Yeah. And, I, and I, I, le I learned this lesson that, that that isn't the way you do it. And so I, I ripped up my speech and I ne I'm never going to do that again. And then the next time I had to speak, which was a year or so later, I just, in what we'd call winged it now, just had basic notes. And, and the thing I love doing more than anything is speaking in public or on the telly. I can see that, yeah. And it's not showing off. And I fought this for a long time. My ex-business partner accused me of having a big ego. I, I haven't, I, but I'm good at that and I like doing it. Having a big ego is, is, is not exposing yourself to the risk of doing the things that you're not very good at. I'm, I happily... I happily expose myself. Um, it, how you make a money, how you make money out of that is really challenging. And there are some speakers on the circuit that are like, in my field, that are like 25k for a talk. I, I, I'm, I'm not that. I'm like loads, 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 a fraction of that. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. I can still earn money and get my message uh, uh, across. So, so I've ended up in this place where I still struggle to define what it is I do. But sustainability runs through it like Blackpool through a stick of rock. And it's about making the world a better place, no matter how you define better. Mm -hmm. But I love the psychology or the pseudo psychology that sits behind people's motivations. I love uncovering and picking a purpose and why we do the things that we do. And I've ended up doing exactly what I love, but being really ill prepared to define it and explain it. That whole kind of defining thing, I think it, it, it's getting harder and harder. I mean, I've struggled with it myself, you know, and, and I, I think the way that you work, and, and I know a little bit about the stuff that you do, just from kind of following you, I guess, for a, a few years, um, it almost seems irrelevant. I mean, I'm not going to say you're saying again, you've said it three times, but, you know, it, it, it's kind of like, I mean, my next question was going to be, do you have a job title? I mean, you know, you've, you've gone through your life doing these things. You've told yeah. me a little bit of that journey. And with all of these interviews, I'm not asking people to expose what they do until right at the end because I don't want anyone to judge them and, sure. you know, based on their job title or... Um, but I'm intrigued. Like, you know, like there must be some people that ask you that, you know, that, 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 that have an expectation of, oh, I need to know what you do and I need to put you in a pigeonhole. Yeah. Well, what do you say? My mum has that expectation. When I was at ASDA, she understood exactly what I did, who I did it for. She's never known before and she's never known after, and that's fine. She's the, the world that wants to know what I do. My brother and my father are equally similar. They, they don't understand what I do. That's not, that's not abnormal. People like to, well, two things. Firstly, we define ourselves by what we do rather than what we believe. 
we like the title. And, and that kind of puts us in a box. And the amount of times you get asked at a dinner party or, a, or an event or whatever, you know, the football or whatever it is that you go to do, what, what is it you do? That's always asked before, what is it you believe? Yeah. And, and we give them the title I am and the environmental manager, head of sustainability, whatever it was, as that was really a really good title. And then when I ran my small consultancy, I was, I was MD, MD. Yeah, it's kind of meaningless, I isn't it? I couldn't manage anything. <laughs> kind of... I'm quite good at directing, yeah. but I couldn't manage anything. And, and then I was just boss. I was boss of my company before this. I don't have a job title now. I, 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 don't, I don't know how to define what I do very well. Um, and some people who know me for sustainability, when they find out that I do all the other stuff on innovation and disruption, they're really surprised. And I was talking to somebody the other day about the work I do on sustainability, and she said, I don't ever see you as that. And that's really interesting and, and heartwarming because people know that I can help their business or themselves. I work with people on one-to-one -one as well. And, and they get me in and they trust me. But it, it more often than not confuses the, the hell out of people. And uh, the person it confuses the, the hell out of the most is actually me. So maybe I do struggle with a lack of job title and I used to use the word provocateur, but then everybody else started to use it and it seems pointless. And I would never use the word disruptor because that just is a hackneyed phrase and also who wants to invite a disruptor into, into their business. I, I hate the word coach because if we're looking at people that really, I just had a conversation with someone recently about my coaching rates and I, I inflated them massively in order to impress this person. Why I did that, I don't know. And she was fantastic. She went, oh, so we charge about the same. And then um, she went, oh no, gosh, no, yours is a day, mine's an hour. So, um, so my hyperinflated, quadrupled or tripled day rate, she charges an hour. And, and I, see there's a dislocation between value and price and at some point the market will as well yeah yeah i'm intrigued by that that gut feeling you had when she told you what her <laughs> that was per hour so i'm really interested in that whole status thing you know that that you know and we all feel it a little bit you know we all play that kind of like dance between you know being you know purpose and not all being about money but we need money as well go live and exactly and it's also the simplest kind of base level way of measuring something about what you're doing. Or... It's, the, it's, the, it's the height role that we all have hold of. We all understand it. And you know, if I'm honest, when I ran my consultancy, my eco-consultancy during the 2000s, I, um, I lent on my salary and my job title a lot. And I don't have a big salary anymore and I don't have a job title. So I have nothing to lean on but the outputs of the work that I do. And that's made me, I'm a better person. I've rediscovered my hippie, my inner weirdness. The thing that made me weird as a kid, as James Victoria often says, makes you brilliant now. I've rediscovered that awkward, eccentric exhibitionist. That's what I've rediscovered. And, and I don't have to put a job title on it. People know me, they meet me. I did a thing for telly recently and I got called Mr. Packaging by the person that was introducing the, the piece. And I've spent 12 years not being Mr. Packaging because for a long time I did eco-design of packaging. 
and I fought it and fought it and fought it. And then I thought I got away from it and then I got called it on national telly on BBC One at prime time. And I thought, oh, well, that's, I can't run away I from it. I can't run away from it. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. do do that. And, and, but my reaction to it was interesting. It wasn't one of dislike or disdain or, 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 or irritation. I just thought, yeah, fair enough. Easy for people to understand. So my final question to you is, it's going to take us back to kind of childhood and school. If job titles, money, and that stuff that little bits of us feel a bit of guilt over or a bit of confusion over aren't so important in today's world, what, what is it that educators and parents and schools need to be doing to prepare kids now for the next three, four decades of work? That's a brilliant question. And if I'm honest with you, um, if I had the answer, then I would be employed by local education authorities and the government to, to, to do this. I kind of have the answer. I, I still see these quirky, creative, amazing kids, all, all kids are all of those things, like rough pebbles in a, in a, in a fast moving river. And over the next 10 years from eight to 18, all the corners get worn off them and they become smooth and a bit nicer to put in your pocket and a little less offensive to hold in your hand. And, and that's, that's made them imminently employable in the past. They go on the milk round or they find a job and there's always someone that wants them. The change that I see is that those large organizations now don't want smooth pebbles. They want quite uncomfortable things to hold in, in their hand or they say they do. And they're looking for the, for the quirky and the kids because they're being advised by teachers and parents to fit a job, you need to be a manager. Fucking hell, we don't want any more managers, we need leaders, we need people who care, not, not who manage. Um, but you wanna go into management, you wanna go into business, into these broad terminologies that we, that we apply to, to career progression. It, that, that helps knock the corners off even more. And then when the big companies or the little companies come looking for the spiky, difficult kids, they can't see them because they've knocked their corners off so much. And educators and parents need to understand that actually help your child or the people or the kids you're looking after find the thing that they love doing. There will be a career for them. There will be a calling for them. It may not be a job. And in, in, a, in a world where nearly everybody will be self-employed or a corporate slave, there won't be anything else out there then I would much rather be a self-employed person who, who is able, a, a bit like a, a, almost like a kind of, kind of terrier, kind of picking up bits where they can. It's really hard, it's exhausting to keep, you must know this, to keep looking for work, but, but it's the most fulfilling thing when it works. And to have, a, to have a, a world where you don't come home, take your suit off and become dad again or mum again, but your dad or mum all day, and you're not, you're able to work in your leisure time and you're able to leisure in your work time, that it's just time. Someone explained it brilliantly to me the other day. They don't believe in work-life balance. They think they're a DJ with two mixing decks and a beautiful crossfader between the two. And, and, I, and I get that. I, I got four children, and every one of those children has started a tiny little business on the side because they've seen me and, and my wife and the way we work blend into everyday life. And they, and my daughter's boyfriend's the same. And, and we're, 
I'm able to inspire those nearest to me. Actually, it's hard to inspire those nearest to you, but I'm able to, and, and to have these kind of fuller lives. And the two of them have gone on to university and, and the other two may do in time. They'll go down that formal education route, but they won't take it so seriously that they'll, that they'll end up being dragged through a corporate world. And, and you, see this all, you see this all the time. And we have, we have the modern slave trade now. It's really interesting. I, I work within the kind of creative industries sector, whatever that means, or the, the, the agency world. And these people are working 15-hour days, being paid 20 grand a year to be creative machines. We can't keep doing that. And the way that the world is changing, we've got three billion more middle class emerging over the next five to 10 years. And they are not new people. They're people moving from work into middle class. And they want to learn skills that are all about design and, and all about creativity rather than digging things out of the ground or, or, or nailing things together. We own design and creativity now. We won't in five years. It'll be instead of designed in California, made in China, it'll be designed in China, made in Africa. What are, what are we for? So we have to move back towards more purposeful roles, like we have to move back to manufacturing. We have to do this. So our job, the, the key thing that you've got to te teach, to go back to your question, is that whatever is popular in terms or in, in demand now will not be in demand in five years. So have a flexible, broad enough education so you can do anything. Don't narrow down to arts or science too early. Don't think about left side, right side of brain. And please don't think that you're not creative because every, everybody is. Brilliant. And that's a really a good place to end this interview. Thank you so much, Mark, for Loved taking it. some time out to be on the radio show. Thank you. <laughs>